Well, there's no doubt about it. The book of Revelation is a book that people react to in all sorts of different ways. Uh, since we've begun this series, some people have said to me, just loving it, just, just loving the chance to be able to go through this book of Revelation and it's opening up the teaching and, and I'm understanding it and I'm loving it. But then some others have said to me, uh, not really, I'm doing a bit tough at the moment, church isn't so good, um, I reckon we'd be better off without the book of Revelation, and um, you'd probably know which one of those you are. Um, and, and that's pretty much always been the attitude of those who hear the book of Revelation, and that's why most preachers will never venture into it, and very rarely will someone dare to take a church through the whole book of Revelation. Um, and I'll be honest with you, um, I was going to say, I was planning on saying, I think our numbers have dropped off a little since we've begun, but looking around today, it's like we've just about t totally disappeared. Um, but we're going to continue on with this series. Uh, the Lord has told us that we'll be blessed by reading it, and he's told us that we'll be blessed by hearing it. And so we're going to keep on pressing on because I believe the Lord's word is true and we will be blessed by studying this book. And I refuse to leave anything out, no matter how harsh it may sound to our delicate ears. Uh, we can't leave anything out because in Revelation chapter 22, it, it gives us a warning for those who do cut stuff out of this book. And just as it gives a warning to those who add stuff to it. So it may be tough going. Um, well, it is tough going. But Jesus commanded us, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to be loving the Lord with our minds as we wrestle with Revelation chapters 10 and 11. And there's no doubt about it. Um, we, actually, we are actually in some of the toughest stuff in the whole of the Bible at the moment to understand. Revelation is without a doubt one of the toughest books to understand, and the section that we're in at the moment is one of the toughest parts of Revelation to understand. But let's just pray, hey? Heavenly Father, I just ask that as we study your word today, Lord, I ask that you would open it up to us, Lord, that that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts, helping us to understand, no matter how unskilled we are in, in Bible interpretation, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us personally today. In Jesus' name, amen. Righto. Um, so we're going to read Revelation chapters 10 and 11, uh, but for now we'll read chapter 10 through to 11 verse 14, and then we'll read the other part towards the end of the message. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion, when he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and who is in it, the earth and that is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. 
but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them to be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third is soon to come. See what I mean by it's some of the toughest part of the whole book of Revelation that we're in now. Let's have a little recap. The Apostle John had a vision and in the spirit he was taken to the throne room of heaven and there Jesus was handed a scroll sealed with seven seals and this scroll uh, contains God's plan for history and Jesus was the only one who was worthy to break the seals and as the seven seals were broken, we were given something like a table of contents, revealing a, a, a little hint of what's going to come through the rest of the revelation. After the seven seals were seven trumpets. Uh, 
And these seven trumpets reveal God's judgment of the world in greater detail. Uh, So far in our studies, we've had six trumpets blown. And by the end of today's message, we'll see that the seventh, what the seventh trumpet represents. The final three trumpets, that is trumpets five, six and seven, are also called the three woes because they are so terrible, the things that they represent, at least from the perspective of the ungodly. From the perspective of those who are anxiously waiting for Jesus, it's actually not too bad. But from the perspective of the ungodly, these are going to be terrible times. Uh, In a couple of weeks' time, we'll come to the seven bowls, which will represent God's judgment in even greater detail. And so I explained last week that we have to understand as we read this book of Revelation, it's not a start-to-finish sequence of events. It describes the same events several times in different ways. And last week I told you how Philip Jensen uses the analogy of the instant replay that we have with our sporting events, Um, and I reckon that's a really good analogy. In footy, somebody makes a spectacular try, and we don't only see it once on the telly, they show it four, five, six times, all from different angles shot with different cameras. Each time we're seeing something different but it's recording the one event. And that's what we have in the book of Revelation. And that's exactly what's happening now. We're between trumpet six and trumpet seven, and here we're being given another camera angle. All right, so what are the angles that we've been given so far? The seven seals gave us a brief overview of what's going to happen in the book of Revelation, and we caught a little glimpse there of the suffering that is going to happen to Christians during that time. The seven trumpets gave it from the angle of the ungodly, right? So it tells us in more detail the judgment that's coming upon the world and it focuses on this judgment and how it's going to impact the ungodly. But now we're getting a different camera angle again. What are Christians doing during this time? Um, What are God's witnesses doing as God is pouring out his wrath upon the world? Well, I'll tell you what they're doing. What do you think a witness would be doing? This isn't rocket science. What's a witness going to be doing? Witnessing, Witnessing, of course. They're going to be witnessing. They're preaching. They're telling the world that, that these woes, these disasters, are God's wrath against those who won't listen to him. They're God's wrath against those who won't turn to him. And of course, they're preaching the grace and the mercy of God for all who repent and all who turn their hearts to toward God, because that's always been the message of the preacher. But how do the ungodly respond to this preaching? Well, they hate it. And they treat God's faithful witnesses very badly. Just like Israel during the plagues of Egypt were treated more harder, more harshly by their slave masters, right? They worked them even harder. Well, the ungodly harden their hearts against God and God's faithful witnesses will get the blame for all of their suffering. And so Christians become public enemy number one and they are hated more vehemently and treated more violently. So... Chapter 10 begins with a mighty angel who's obviously been sent by God because the description of him is very much, very similar to the description of the glory of God. And this angel has a little scroll open in his hand and John hears the seven thunders, but we don't know what the seven thunders said. John, don't write that down. 
there are some things that we are not meant to know about the future. We're not meant to know the hour of the day. It's going to be a surprise when Jesus comes back. We're not meant to know exactly how the end of the world is going to unfold. If we were meant to know all of these things, God would have told us very plainly, but he hasn't. And so there are some very important lessons for us to learn from Revelation, but let's not spend our every single waking moment trying to work out every single little detail so that we'll know exactly how everything else is going to unfold, because even if we can work out everything that God's given us, we're still not going to have the full story, because God has decided that there's some things that we're not meant to know. Right, at this point... The angel swears that there will be no more delay and that once the seventh trumpet gets blown, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. Just as he announced to his servants, the prophets, all right? When the seventh trumpet gets blown, God will be revealing to us a glimpse of the final scene of the resurrection of the righteous, the reward of those who are faithful to God, Jesus's coming in his kingdom and the judgment of the dead. We're not going to be shown much of it at the seventh trumpet. Uh, most of it will, is, will get shown later towards the end of the revelation, but we do catch a little glimpse of it at the seventh trumpet. But we're not there yet. We're only up to verse 8. So John is told to take the scroll from the angel. He asks, well, 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 give it to me. And the angel says, no, you have to take it and eat it. And he did. And it tasted sweet in his mouth, but then his stomach was made bitter. In the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel um, had a very similar experience, but without the bitterness. In Ezekiel chapter 3, God said to Ezekiel, eat this scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. And Ezekiel says, so I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he said to me, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. The image here is very clear. The duty of every disciple of Jesus has always been to be a witness for him. How are we, though, to be witnesses for Jesus? By devouring the word of God and then speaking the word of God to the world. If you're not regularly reading your Bible, you need to be. Do you know what the, the Greek word used here for scroll is biblion, from which we get our word Bible. John was given the word of God to eat. We have been given the word of God to eat. And that is what we are to take into our inner being. And this is what we are to share with the world. And it is sweet in our mouths. Isn't it wonderful as you read your Bible, as you study God's word, to be able to read and understand and know the grace of God, the love of God, the mercy of God. How sweet it is to, to learn about salvation, that God saves us from our sin. God saves us from ourselves. And how sweet it is to know that he is in control of the world. He is in control of our destiny. He is in control of the future. 
And how sweet it is to know that we will be with the Lord in his glorious presence. The gospel is truly good news. Sweet as sweet can be, relieved of our burdens, filled with hope and filled with peace and filled with joy. Sweetness. But then, as we digest this book, there is a bitterness to it. Now, I've got to tell you, since we've gotten into this section of Revelation, and as I've prepared these messages and as I've preached these messages, there has been a bitterness in my stomach. Because the sweetness, the salvation of God's faithful is accompanied by the judgment and the torment of the wicked. And I suspect that's why some people love the book of Revelation so much, because they only take in the sweetness. Or maybe they don't love like God loves and the destruction of the wicked doesn't faze them any. And so they love it so much because it's just filled with sweetness to them. And I reckon that's why some people also hate the book of Revelation because they fail to catch the sweetness. And all they see is the wrath and the judgment and the condemnation. And all of it to them seems bitter. But we have never properly understood the gospel unless we both recognise the sweetness and the bitterness of it. Leon Morris said, The true preacher of God's word will faithfully proclaim the denunciations of the wicked it contains. But he does not do this with fierce glee. The more his heart is filled with the love of God, the more certain it is that the telling forth of woes will be a bitter experience. And I have to agree with that. If we truly love our neighbour, describing these woes and telling of these woes has a bitterness to it. Because anyone whose faith isn't in Jesus will be caught up in all of this. There is a bitterness to the gospel. A bitterness for those who reject Jesus, but there is also a wonderful, wonderful sweetness for those who are his faithful. Let's move on. We're now into chapter 11. And John is given two tasks, to measure the temple and its altar and to measure those who worship there. Um, but he's told not to measure the court of the Gentiles outside of the temple. So is this an image of a temple that's been rebuilt in Jerusalem, I wonder. Currently, there's a Muslim shrine called the Dome of the Rock standing on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And many Christians, and of course many Jews, have planned to demolish the Dome of the Rock and rebuild the temple to the designs prophesied by Ezekiel. And of course, there are some Christians who, who are working at this and trying to get all of this done before Jesus returns. But, you know, I don't reckon that the temple described in Ezekiel is a physical temple at all. Because of this temple, God says that it is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. Now, this to me does not sound like a literal temple because in Acts chapter 17, Paul says that God does not live in temples made by man. It seems to me that the temple being described in Ezekiel is the same metaphor 
of a temple that's being described in the book of Revelation. Throughout the book of Revelation, it it refers to this temple in heaven. And yet we get through to chapter 21 and John says that he saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. All right? There is no temple. God is the temple. You get this? The temple is the symbol of God's presence. It always has been. And here, the temple seems to be getting used as a symbol of God's presence with his people. It's talking about the church and God's presence in the church. It is something in existence. It it is measurable. Even through all of these terrible plagues, the church will continue to exist. And you understand, don't you, that, that biblically speaking, The church is not a denomination. The church is not an institution. The church of Jesus Christ is where Christians will continue to meet together to worship God. We're the church here this morning. A bunch of Christians meeting together to worship God. The church is meeting in a number of places all over town, all over Australia, all over the world this very day. What was the purpose of the temple of old? The temple was the sign of God's presence among his people. But how is God present with us today? By his Holy Spirit. Back in chapter 7, we heard how God sealed his people. And when we discuss that, what, what, what does it mean for God to seal his spirit people? How does he seal his people? He seals his people with his Holy Spirit. So this brings up a question, why is there no court of the Gentiles in this temple? Well, the temple used to have this thing called the court of the Gentiles. That that was where people who were lookers, right, will come in and we'll have a bit of a look at what God's people are doing, but we're not actually one of them, and we'll sort of just be on the fringes. So they were only allowed as far as the court of the Gentiles. They weren't allowed in where God's real people were. But here, having this temple described, there is no court of the Gentiles. Why not? Because those who are not disciples of Jesus are not sealed with the Holy Spirit. God is not with them. I mean, God is with us if we are his children. Yes, God is seeking us like that story of Cecil the lost sheep. God is seeking us. But God is with us. God is in us. God fills us with his Holy Spirit. And he gives us strength and hope and power and love and joy and peace. All of these things are the fruit of the Spirit when we are believers in Christ. And so the main message here, don't get caught up in timelines and and human causes to get a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem. The main message here is in spite of everything, there is still a place where God's people are meeting. The church continues to be present in the world. It hasn't been snatched out of the world. And the Lord our God has sealed us. His Holy Spirit is with us. And for three and a half years, or 1260 days, or 42 months, it's the same period of time, and we're going to see that number come up a lot over the next few chapters of Revelation, God's church will be trampled on. And once again, 
Some people look to these numbers as being, right, for three and a half years, there's going to be severe persecution. But once again, these numbers are symbolic. Remember, everything in, in Revelation, most things in Revelation, are symbols. That's what apocalyptic literature is all about. Seven years would mean complete But here we've only got half of that. We're being told that this time has been cut short. Yes, it is a definite period of time and it will happen, but it's not going to go on and on forever. It is a time that will come to an end. And the Christian church will be persecuted dreadfully. They will be trampled upon. But hold on to your faith through that time because it does come to an end. And during this time from the church, there will arise two preachers. Who are they? Oh, there's been a lot of speculation about this through the ages. Some people will say, oh, well, it's got to be Martin Luther and John Calvin from the Reformation. And some people will come up with some couple of great George Whitfield and maybe John Wesley. That's those two. Or some people, I think that's all pointless speculation. They sound like Moses and Elijah because of the miracles they perform. But they're also described as being two olive trees. And so this takes us to the book of Zechariah and makes them sound like Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua. Who are these two witnesses? Well, it is possible that two individuals will be raised to preach And this tells us about their miracles and signs and wonders and about their demise and resurrection. But once again, we have to understand we're dealing here with apocalyptic literature. And that these two witnesses are also described as two lampstands and two olive trees. These are all symbols. They are a symbol of God's faithful witnesses who are raised up to preach Let me explain. From earlier in the book of Revelation, we know that a lampstand represents a church. Right? And here they're being described as two lampstands. Now, if you can remember back to the letters to the seven churches, there were only two churches out of the seven who Jesus didn't have anything bad to say about. They hadn't taken on the ways of the world. They were free from idolatry and they were free from immorality. They continued to love. They continued to be witnesses for Jesus and they were being persecuted because of it. And so the two lampstands represent the faithful church who are faithfully witnessing for Jesus. What else does the number two tell us? Well, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, one witness is never enough. You can't convict somebody on the testimony of one witness. You cannot convict somebody or have somebody put to death on the testimony of one witness. Two witnesses are required. And so the fact that there's two witnesses here signifies that what they say is trustworthy. What about the two olive trees? Well, that takes us to the prophet Zechariah, where the two olive trees represent Zerubbabel, who we don't talk about much, and not many of us name our kids after Zerubbabel, do we? I was trying to think, what, what would you shorten it to if your kid's name was Zerubbabel? I don't know. Um, so 
but in Zechariah, it represents Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua. Now, these two people were given the task of rebuilding the temple and getting the people back right with God. And it all seemed way too impossible for them because they were so insignificant. How could they possibly achieve it? But God said something to Zerubbabel, and I know you most of you will have heard this verse, but I bet not many of you know where it comes from. Did you know what it was, Roy? I think I sort of saw you start to quote it. No? Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says Yahweh of hosts. All right, so you've heard that scripture before? Yeah. Now let's bring all of this imagery together. These two witnesses represent all of God's faithful Christian witnesses who in the power of God and despite worldly persecution continue to call the world to repentance. That's why they're wearing sackcloth, by the way. A sackcloth is a symbol of repentance. And they might seem insignificant. After all, what can a few witnesses do for Jesus when the whole world is against them? What could you do for Jesus? What could I possibly achieve for Jesus if the whole world is set against me and against you? But just like God said to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Wow. Now, whether it be literally two witnesses or whether it symbolizes, as I believe it does, the witness of the whole Christian church, it doesn't really matter. It's not by our power. It's not by our might, but by the Spirit of God that we witness for him. And at this point, I was thinking, I was going to say, right, don't ever feel that you're incapable to be a witness for God. But that would be entirely the wrong thing to say because you are incapable. You're just as incapable of being a good witness for God as what I am incapable of being a good witness for God. But God can do it through us. Yes, we are incapable to be witnesses for Jesus. Yes, we are incapable to stand up strong for him when persecutions come against us and even the threat of death. We are incapable in our own strength to remain faithful to him. But by the Holy Spirit of God, we have every capability. You know, sometimes people say to me, you know, we talk about persecution and oh, I hope I'll be able to stand strong, but how will I ever know until I'm tested? Well, you know how you can know? You can trust in the power of God. You can trust in the power of the Holy Spirit because it's not you in your own strength standing strong when the world comes against you. It's God in his Holy Spirit inside of you, giving you strength and keeping your mind firmly fixed on, on the glory that is to come. God gives us the strength. We don't have to be strong enough because God is. Sadly, though, I cannot paint a rosy picture on this for us. Anyone who dares to be a witness for Jesus in these days, right, we're talking about towards the end, but it's already happening in some places in the world now today. Yes, God will be with them. Yes, God will do mighty miracles through them. Yes, God will protect them from their enemies. That is, until their time for witnessing is finished. And the Antichrist who persecutes God's church will kill them. And I feel 
that this is the part of the book of Revelation that makes me feel the worst. When God's faithful witnesses are killed, the world throws a party. They leave their bodies lying on the street for a while. Even their corpses are humiliated. And then they give presents to each other to celebrate their demise. It's not very popular to be a preacher of repentance in a world that doesn't want to repent. And so God's great witnesses will be absolutely despised by the world. I believe we're already beginning to see this today. There once was a time when non-Christians respected and listened to and even sought what men and women of God would have to say on all sorts of issues, but not anymore. Anyone who dares to call the world to repentance is hated and vilified. And if one of them should happen to fall, doesn't the world celebrate? I've been... um, hearing various snippets on the, on the news over this last week about Margaret Court. Um, and it's just been incredible to see the reaction of the world against her statements. Margaret Court was bold enough to stand up strong in her faith and say, I won't fly on Qantas anymore because Qantas are now supporting same-sex marriage. And in God's eyes, that's wrong. Um, And she gave an interview on Vision Radio. And since then, it's gone viral, her interview, at least little snippets of it, right throughout the world. And the, the hatred that the world and the venom that they spew out upon Margaret Court is just incredible. Um, I remember years ago, the news covered the Sydney um, Mardi Gras. And I remember... seeing a float and on this float was a giant paper mache head of a well-known preacher Fred Nile severed and on a platter and they danced in glee in the streets around it and that was the image that immediately came to my mind when when I when I read this part in the revelation about people dancing around the court you know being celebrating the death of these Christians um Now, this sort of thing is going to become commonplace. Only it's going to be a reality. It's not just going to be a paper mache caricature. Witnesses for Jesus will be killed in the street and the world will party. Where's all this going to happen? Well, it does mention a great city, symbolically called Sodom and Egypt. It does mention that, there's, um, that it's the place where the Lord was crucified. So it could represent Jerusalem. But once again, we're dealing with symbols here. We have a heavenly city opposing the earthly city. As one commentator said, it is man in organised community and opposed to God. Where will this happen? Where organised community, wherever society is opposed to God. So, Jesus' faithful witnesses are killed, but they don't stay that way. After a short while, they're raised from the dead. Three and a half days, right? A short while. 
After a short while, they raise from the dead, ascend to heaven. More terrors fall upon the city. There is a great earthquake. 7,000 people are killed, by the way. Once again, not literal numbers. Seven, meaning complete. A thousand, meaning a large number. I think that this is probably looking forward to the final death count before Jesus comes back to judge. And here... For the very first time in the Revelation, people are not only terrified, but they actually give glory to God. Now, I don't know whether that means that they repent and are saved, whether it just means they finally acknowledge that God is behind it all. The second woe is past. The third woe is about to come. Now, these woes have been getting progressively worse and worse and worse but you know what the third woe is? I, I find it really hard to think of this one as a woe. You know why? Jesus comes back. So let me read verses 15 to 19 of Revelation 11. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged. But your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. Even though we've still got a fair bit of the book of Revelation to go, the seventh trumpet is talking about the time when Jesus returns. The camera angle is now looking forwards to the coming of the kingdom. All those who die in the Lord will be raised from the dead. All those who, who have been killed as his faithful witnesses will live. Back in Revelation chapter 1 verse 7, it said, Behold, that just means look, look. He's coming in the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And you'd expect people to be joyful, wouldn't you? But now it says, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. You know, when you love Jesus as much as you probably do, and when you're anxiously waiting for Jesus to, to come back as much as you probably are, it's really hard to imagine that anyone would weep and wail because Jesus is coming. You can see him coming. It's hard to imagine why this is one of the three woes. Here on the seventh trumpet, we're catching a glimpse of the final judgment. It's the time when even the dead will be judged. But to God's faithful, there is a sweetness. It is the time for the rewarding of God's servants, the prophets, the saints, and, and those who fear his name, both small and great. You might think that you're insignificant. That doesn't stop the Lord from rewarding you if you're his faithful. 
and it's the time for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Well, today, as I said at the start, I said it was going to be tough going, and it has been tough going. I hope you've managed to keep up with me. Uh, By the way, as we get into these different sections of of Revelation, um, there are so many different possible interpretations that all sorts of people come up with, um, and I couldn't possibly have time to say, okay, here's, here's 20 different interpretations of what this could mean. Um, and so you may have sat there today, stewing away, uh, saying, what a load of rubbish. I've never, been, I've never heard that before. I was always taught this, or I was always taught that. No, no, that's what this means. Um, and that's fine. I've done a lot of reading And I've read lots and lots of different opinions. And what I've shared today, I believe, uh, to my way of thinking, is truest to God's word. And I'm going to tell you, I've actually had to have a change of mind as I've studied this in more detail. Um, Some of what I've shared today is not the popular understanding of how the book of Revelation gets interpreted. And I have to admit, I've been personally influenced a lot in the past by the popular understanding of how Revelation gets interpreted. But as you start digging into it and seeing how it refers back to the Old Testament and, um, and seeing how these Old Testament messages are embedded in the book of Revelation, I've actually had to change my view of how what I believe God is saying to us in this book. And so this, what I've shared today, is the direction the Lord has taken me. And, of course, the main message for today is through all of the great tribulation when it comes, and even today, we are called to be God's faithful witnesses. You're called to be God's faithful witnesses as much as I am. And, yes, the world will hate us because of it, but God is with us. And it's not in our strength that we do this, it is in God's strength. And we do this not for ourselves, we do it because we love our neighbour. If we have a friend or a neighbour who we love, we need to share this with them. Because we earnestly desire them to be saved. And you might think you don't have enough strength or enough ability to do that, but it's not by might. It's not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And even if and when our witness results in death, we are raised from the dead to a heavenly reward in Christ's coming kingdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray for your faithful witnesses all over the world today. We pray for ourselves. We pray for this very church. Lord, may we be faithful witnesses for you. Lord, even though the world may hate us, help us to love them enough that we would share the sweetness and the bitterness of the gospel. Not by our might, not by our power, but by your spirit. Be our strength, be our comfort, be our confidence, be our hope, be our salvation. And Lord, we pray that you would take the words that we speak and may they be life-giving words, words 
that would lead a broken and lost world out of the darkness and into your glorious light. In Jesus' name, amen. Next week, uh, we're going to get another camera angle of the Great Tribulation. Um, And next week, we're going to get a view of the spiritual battle that lies behind the physical reality of what's going on.